let's uh, let's open with prayer. Um, Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity we have to come together to, to worship you, to praise your name, to, uh, to study your word and how it has come down to us. And, uh, Lord, just as we consider controversial issues, God, I just pray that we would have uh, a spirit of grace, a spirit of compassion, um, and uh, Lord, just that you would guide us into the truth, that we would um, not be swayed by uh, either just a, a love for um, tradition uh, and the way that things have been, um, nor be uh, tempted to abandon the things that are true and uh, just seek after worldly wisdom, but, but Lord, that we would have just the proper balance of seeking to be true to your word, uh, to be uh, indeed reformed Christians, that we would be Christians who, uh, who put off the things that uh, don't really belong as, as a part of what we believe and, and the, way we, uh, the way we worship, and, uh, but Lord, that we would be true um, and not abandon the, the things that, uh, that you have so clearly uh, revealed to us. And so God, I just pray that you would give us wisdom as we study right? Christ. Okay, well, this morning um, we are continuing our study of how we got the Bible. We've got some somewhat controversial topics this morning. Um, I, I would probably hesitate to present this if it wasn't for the fact that um, here at Kirk of the Plains we use the ESV, so I know um, at least the official position is not... Um, a, uh, an undue uh, attachment to the King James Version of the Bible. Um, but we're going to be talking about things along those lines. Um, so we have talked about, um, still in the historical section, obviously this is a, a pretty um, big topic. We, we haven't really even moved past the second point of the historical section, so... Um, we, we will eventually get to the theology part of it. But, um, so we've talked about the copying, we've talked about the corruption and restoration of the text. We're still working through uh, restoration issues, um, you know, just in the corruption of the text. We, we did talk about, you know, the number of variants, what types of variants matter, uh, what types of variants occurred, um, just as a review. Um, and we talked about reconstructing the text, looking at both external and internal evidence. And so we've, we've kind of talked about some of the things that are looked at um, as people attempt to figure out when we're looking at the variants, what's the, the actual proper reading. Um, and we, uh, we kind of ended last time um, as we were kind of marching through the history of of how people have been dealing with this, the fact that the printing press came about, and so we started getting printed editions. Uh, Erasmus, Stephanus, Beza, uh, Mill, these are, these are people that were, they were putting together printed editions, and the science of textual criticism became more and more uh, thorough. Uh, typo there. Um, uh, let's see. Or uh, thought out, I guess, is actually, okay, that's what I was, thought out was what I was aiming for. <laughs> Sorry, thought out and systematic. This is a different type of than I thought. Um, so the science of textual criticism became more thought out and systematic. Um, 
And so you see that as they go, um, you know, the printed editions, they just have more notes. And then even after the printed editions I have listed here, just people did a lot more of discussing, like, how do we go about textual criticism? What's the proper methods? What weight should we give to what things? How do we figure things out? Um, now, when we come to the modern day, it, it leads to some, um, some contentious issues. And as we talk about this, one thing that's important is that we understand terminology. I know just in my conversations with people and hearing people talk about this, sometimes people will get some of these things a little confused in terms of terminology. So we're going we're to try to kind of give a groundwork of some terminology here that will help with our discussion. Um, first thing, we have uh, text types or families. And we've mentioned this already. Uh, but Basically what that's talking about, that's Greek manuscripts that are based on similar readings. So we're not talking about printed editions there, we're talking about the actual manuscripts, the handwritten copies. And, um, and people will go through and they'll compare the readings between the different manuscripts and they'll attempt to group them together and say, okay, this group of manuscripts tends to read the same way in a whole bunch of places, and then this group tends to read the same way in a whole bunch of uh, of areas, and so they they categorize texts into text types or families, um, and that can be helpful for trying to figure out what's the original reading. We also have Greek texts. Now, the Greek texts; these are the printed versions of the Greek New Testament uh, that combine manuscript readings in different ways. And so, it's it's this isn't a manuscript; this is something that went to the printing press or you know the modern equivalent. Um, as we're in the more digital age, um, where they're looking at the different manuscripts and they're trying to put them together in a particular way that's helpful for the people that are studying the Bible that are translating the Bible. So that's what that's what the Greek texts are. And then you also have textual perspectives. <coughs> now the textual perspectives are different philosophies of how to approach the variations in our manuscripts. Um, and there's there's basically four different um, philosophies, textual perspectives that are kind of the the positions of our day. Um, now, the, the reason I lay these three different categories out is because some of the terminology between them is really similar, and so it can be really easy to like get confused about, are we talking about a, a text type? Are we talking about a Greek text? Are we talking about a textual perspective? Okay. So it's important that we try to keep these things straight, that, that they are different things. So just to review, text types or families, there's been a bunch of text types or families that have been uh, postulated over the years as people have compared different manuscripts. But kind of the, the three that, um, that really have kind of the most credibility um, are the Alexandrian, the Western, and the Byzantine. Um, and so basically they just look at them and they say, okay, we have this group of manuscripts that reads pretty similar. We're going to call these Alexandrian. The idea is that they largely come from that area, um, kind of Egyptian uh, manuscripts. Um, Western is more like Western Europe type uh, manuscripts, and they have a particular characteristic in terms of variants. And then Byzantine is, uh, is basically surrounded, centered around uh, Byzantium, uh, basically the old Greek Empire where um, Greek continued to be spoken um, you know 
way up in, you know, until the, the time of the printing press, whereas in the other areas, you know, people weren't still speaking Greek, um, you know, uh, nearly as long. Um, and again, if anybody has any questions about this, I, I, sometimes I feel like I'm just throwing just tons and tons of information out, so please stop me if something's not clear or if you need more, uh, more clarification. Greek texts. Now, and this could be just a gigantic list, um, <clears throat> but usually in these discussions, it comes down to basically three different Greek texts. We have the Textus Receptus, um, which is actually, if not a single printed Greek manuscript or a single printed Greek text, it's there's there's a, a collection of them that are in the Textus Receptus category. Um, there's also the majority text for the Byzantine text form. Um, that's another one that you can get. And then there is the critical text. Uh, now, the ESV, it's based on the critical text. Uh, King James Version, it's based on the Textus Receptus. Um, so there's different translations are going to be based on different Greek texts. These are basically our categories. Um, and then we get into the really fun stuff. Textual perspectives. Um, so we have... King James onlyism, which I imagine uh, all of you have at least heard of if you've never encountered it. It's a it's something that isn't around as much as it used to be, but it's it is still around. Um, and then there's TR or Texas Receptus onlyism, um, or you could also refer to it as the ecclesiastical text position, um, which um, definitely has some adherence. Um, then you have uh, the Byzantine priority position or the majority text position. And then you have what's called eclecticism. Now we're going to get into what each of these are um, in a bit of detail and kind of um, just examine them a little bit. But one thing that is important to note is that the difference between these positions is frequently blurred. They do kind of go in that order, but like the difference between a KJV-only position and an ecclesiastical text position, there can be some, some overlap, some blurring between those. In the same way, you could have some overlap, some blurring between the ecclesiastical text position and the Byzantine priority position. Um, and there's even some blurring between the Byzantine priority position and the eclecticism position. So they kind of move in that order, but there is some there's some blurring, there's some overlap. And so sometimes it's like if you're studying what somebody says, sometimes it's hard to figure out which of those positions they're in um, because they can kind of float back and forth across the line. So just to, just to reiterate this, because we just went through each of them, you have the text types, which is that's the Greek manuscripts grouped based on similar readings. The Greek texts are the different printed versions um, that, um, that combine the manuscript readings in different ways. And then you have the textual perspectives, which is the philosophies of how to approach uh, the variations in our manuscripts. So, so on the Greek texts that were printed, mm -hmm. was there any kind of standards that were developed, or did everyone use a particular text type? when they started printing those? Or are those, did they follow the text type that they liked? Or have you even seen that level of detail before? Yeah. Um, I mean, this actually is going to be a, a part of the issue, specifically with the ecclesiastical text type discussion. But, uh, but basically, 
you had, uh, like we talked about Erasmus uh, last week, and we talked about he, you know, he was the first person to publish a printed Greek text. Um, and he used what he could get a hold of. He had access to what was available to him in Basel, and so that's really all he had. Um, later, he was able to look at some more manuscripts and he put out other editions, and so he would make corrections to his editions. But basically, um, people were just using whatever they could get their hands on. Um, you know, and they didn't have you know the internet. Um, nobody had photocopies of any of, of these manuscripts. It was it was really all can I physically go, um, you know, not by airplane or car, but you know, walk, ride a horse, go in a carriage, whatever, uh, you know, sail in a boat. Uh, can I physically go to where this manuscript is, spend time there looking at it, and do the comparisons on my own by hand? Um, or can I write to somebody and have them do that for me because they're nearby it and then send me back the information they find? That was really what they were limited to. Um, and so they were very limited in, uh, in what they had access to as they were creating their, their early printed texts. As more time went by, um, you had um, definitely more and more of looking at more manuscripts. You had people even that would basically just attempt to go and transcribe a, you know, a manuscript and, you know, and do a printed copy of it. Um, obviously, at, at this point, we can just do a photocopy of it now, and, and so it's it's much easier than it was uh, back in the day. But uh, that's really the way they had to approach it. But yeah, that's a good question. On the on that same um, slant. A lot of our understanding of text types comes from the font styles, the scripting of the text itself, to say, oh, that was Alexandrian versus Byzantine, right? Did they, so as they approached that, they, they still probably took maybe multiple different text types to create their Greek text, and whatever print they used was standard across all of it, right? Because um, it's hard to trace back which ones did they have available based on, what, to, what did Erasmus have available? To, to a certain degree. Um, I, one thing I, I may have misheard you, I'm not sure, but the the, the different text types are, are not determined by um, by like the characters they used. The text types are determined by looking at basically looking at the variants and saying which which manuscripts tend to agree in their variants. Um, and so it's it's, it's actually, it's like a lot of work to even figure out what family a manuscript belongs in. But you just have to kind of look at it and say, okay, this group of manuscripts tends to, on, you know, on this number of variants, they tend to agree on all these different variants, so they belong in this text type. Um, but they could be, you know, any type of, like, you know, whether it's the, the capital or the lowercase Greek, or whether it's on parchment or whether it's on papyrus, all sorts of variations in the way that the manuscript comes to us, but it's looking at the at the variants and how much they agree that determines the text types. So I don't know if that's so it's more the content. Yeah. What's that? It's more the content. Yeah, it is it's the, the content. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So types and families are the same thing. Because I, I understood it to be families was the variants it's slant and types was more based on this is how the people of Alexandria wrote their scripts and they used both of those to decide. Yeah. Yeah, that, so I, I that, guess I misunderstood that, that. Yeah, that can be confusing. I, I've got text types and families just because when when people talk about it in the literature, some people tend to use the term text type 
Some people tend to use the term family. Some people switch between them. But those are those are the two terms. But they are synonymous terms. Talk about a text type or a family. It's it's the same thing that we're talking about. So, but yeah, it doesn't have anything to do with the actual type that they used when they were writing. Okay. So, but yeah, that's a good question. Um, did I answer your whole question, or did I only answer half of it? No, that, that answers. Okay. I, I remember there was kind of two parts to that, and I couldn't remember if I got them both. But those are those are good questions. Um, so we're going to kind of just try to to work through these things, um, and you know, and I'm really hoping I don't offend anybody, but I uh, I guess I do want to back up. No, there we go. Um, from my perspective, if you look at the first two of these, I don't think that the first two of these are really intellectually defensible. Um, I, I know, like the second one, there, there's probably some Presbyterians that would that would not be happy with me uh, for saying that, but I, I think I think I'm okay here because we're using the ESV. So um, I haven't seen anybody carrying the King James. So, uh, but again, my intent is not to offend, but. I really do think that uh, we have clear answers on this enough that we can say that, that I guess to go back to say that the first two positions, the King James only position, the the TR only or ecclesiastical text position, aren't really intellectually defensible. Um, but on the other hand, the Byzantine priority or the eclecticism positions are both definitely very intellectually defensible. Um, they they come at it a little differently, and we'll kind of talk about some of the differences. Uh, between those two, but those are those are both perfectly legitimate approaches to the text. Um, but I am going to be much more critical of the first two positions. So, King James only ism. Um, now, the textual basis of the King James version is the various editions of Erasmus, Stephanus, and Beza. Those are those are the people who had put out printed texts. Uh, before 1611, when the King James was was uh, that was when it was completed, but th those were the ones that were available to people. And uh, the King James translators didn't just pick the one that they thought was the best; they actually took a variety of these uh, of these printed texts and used them as they were uh, translating the King James Bible. Um, and in places where the editions differed, the translators chose which editions to follow. Um, now, the King James only position is basically a, I mean, from my perspective, is basically a position of traditionalism. It's basically, well, I grew up with the King James, um, I mean, even here, I, I don't know if any King James only advocate has ever actually said this, but the, the joke always is, well, if the King James was good enough for the Apostle Paul, it's good enough for me. Um, you know, they, they, they almost go to that level. Um, I, I don't know that anyone would actually say that, but um, it's very much the idea that, well, I grew up with the King James. I was told this was the Word of God, and if you alter it in any way whatsoever, well, then basically you're telling me I didn't have the word of God before. Um, and so, you know, if you if you want to be able to say that you have the word of God, you have to have a single English translation that never changes. It's basically the position that's taken, which, in a sense, you could take that for any English translation, 
Uh, but the fact is the King James uh, was kind of the English translation for about 400 years. Um, and, you know, that, that made it where lots of people, that's what they were very used to. Um, now, it's important to note that when they were translating the King James Version of the Bible, uh, they included at least 37 marginal notes pointing out textual variants. Now, this isn't widely known uh, because these are rarely included in printings of the King James Version. Most of the time, if you just go to the store and you pick up the King James Version, it's not going to have any of these notes. Um, so your typical King James only advocate is going to be, they're going to be looking at the King James Version of the Bible, and they're never going to see any note that says, yeah, some manuscripts say something else. Um, but originally, when it was printed, that would actually was the case. Uh, the, the people who translated the King James Version of the Bible, um, they had basically the same philosophy that we do today. You look at the manuscripts, you try to make um, you know, your best assessment of what's correct, and, um, and if there's places where there's enough chance that you might be wrong, you put a footnote that says, yeah, this might not be right. They also had a number of, um, of notes uh, speaking to the issue of translation. Now, we, we're going to be talking about translation in the future, so that's, I haven't really been uh, bringing that up a whole lot. But in the King James only debate, that's a part of it. It's, you know, it's the issue of, like, what's the proper translation? What's the proper text behind the translation? And the, the people who translated the King James Version of the Bible, they didn't view either their text as necessarily definitive. They were willing to put in footnotes with other readings, nor did they view their translation as necessarily definitive. There were places where they put in a footnote that says, hey, this might also be translated this way. So they very much had a realization that what they weren't presenting the perfect English Bible. Does that make sense? Is that that clear? Um, also, there are there are no Greek manuscripts uh, that agree completely with the King James version of the Bible. Uh, this is something that sometimes will come to a shock. To, to, to sh will sometimes shock King James only advocates. That it's like you simply cannot find. A single Greek manuscript anywhere that matches exactly what the King James Version says. And the reason is the King James Version was based on looking at multiple manuscripts and bringing them together um, to, um, uh, to provide what they actually used. Um, definitely a very different philosophy than what you see with the King James only crowd. Uh, the King James only crowd basically they approach it from a perspective of they're not really going to look at history. They're not going to look at facts. Um, it's simply a matter of what's the King James say? That's what I'm going to follow. Um, and unfortunately, uh, some of their writing, I mean, you know, there's obviously there's all sorts of shades and variations of King James onlyism, but a lot of their writings um, will definitely have um, very biased types of argumentation where they'll simply just put in charts and say, well, the King James says this, other translations say this. And they'll basically try to make the, the, um, the assertion that these other translations are trying to alter theology. They're trying to, to alter the word of God. They're trying to denigrate 
the uh, the deity of Christ. They'll they'll point out that um, in the King James it might say Jesus, and in you know in one of the other versions it might say Him or He or something like that. Um, and it's it's basically just trying to get you to look at it and say, oh well, people are changing my Bible and get people uh, very worked up uh, on that basis rather than actually looking at. Uh, the the text and trying to come to a reasonable conclusion. I know that's a really broad overview of King James onlyism. Um, if anybody has any more questions about it, I mean, we could spend weeks talking about all the different arguments they present. But it really amounts to they just decide they're going to follow the King James version of the Bible. A couple things. One, I'm sure if somebody has questions about some of these things they'd like to know more, you probably could direct them to resources that, yeah. they, that they could look at. And so. yeah. If you if you want to study this, I mean, probably the, the best resource is the King James Only Controversy by James White. Um, it's just a, a really good book that just kind of goes through all this stuff. And he looks at a whole bunch of different arguments that they present and looks at individual texts and basically just deals with the position. Yeah, and, the, and this isn't just people who prefer the King James. Right. You know, that there's position is much stronger than that, that they you don't have the word of God if you don't have the King James, mm -hmm. you know. Right. So Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's and that's that's why it's King James only is yeah. rather than King James preferred. Yeah. Um, so if you really like the King James, I mean it's fine. It's um, there's there's definitely an argument to be made that we've made improvements um, over the last four hundred years. Um, but I mean, it was a, it was a good translation 400 years ago, based on based on what information they had and the state of the English language at the time. But we have more information, and the language has changed, and so you can definitely make the case that we should have more modern translations. And that's that's basically been the position of the church throughout history. But interestingly enough, throughout history, when people do come out with new versions of the Bible, people have to some degree, thrown a fit and said, well, you're changing the word of God. Um, that's that's actually not something that's new with uh, with King James only isn't what we see today. I mean, in fact, there was a little bit of pushback like that on the King James because the King James was not the first English translation of the Bible. And there were people that were saying, well, why are you doing this this new version? I guess they would have called it the authorized version. Um, why, why are you doing this new version uh, are you saying that we didn't have, you know, we didn't have the Word of God before, um, you know, and that that's something that's happened repeatedly throughout history. Even where, I mean, we're gonna we're gonna be talking about translation, so some of this stuff will come up. But like, even when Jerome translated uh, the Bible into Latin, there were older Latin versions, um, and some people were really upset. It's like, oh, you're changing the Word of God. Uh, it's like, you know, he's just trying to trying to make a better version in the Latin. So, um, now here we need to talk specifically about the, the Textus Receptus. And this, is, this is tied to the, the King James Version, and it's also going to be tied to our Textus Receptus only or Ecclesiastical Text Position. Um, so at the time of publication, there was no printed Greek text that matched matched the King James. I mean, I mentioned already that there was no there was no manuscript that matched, you know, handwritten manuscript of the Greek New Testament that matched the King James version. There was also no printed Greek text that matched it, um, because they were 
they were looking at Beza's version, they were looking at Stephanus's version, they were looking at Erasmus's version, and they were choosing between the different variants. And so you could never, uh, I mean, in 1611, you could not go buy a Greek New Testament that actually matched the English of the King James Version of the Bible. It just wasn't available. Um, years later, someone tracked down all the textual choices uh, of the of the King James translators and printed a Greek text that matched the King James Version of the Bible. So that did eventually come back, um, but that wasn't something that was initially available because they were just making textual choices based on what they thought was uh, appropriate. Um, now, when we talk about the Textus Receptus, the various printings of the Greek text uh, from this time period are referred to as the Textus Receptus. There isn't one single Textus Receptus. It's basically, we're just talking about this collection of early printed Greek texts. Now, um, when, when we talked about the, the text types, the families, uh, we mentioned the, the Byzantine text type. Um, the Textus Receptus is largely a Byzantine text type printed text. Um, and the reason for that um, is basically just because that's really all that people had access to. It was just a lot harder to get a hold of the other text types. But at this point, they didn't even have the concept of text types in their head. I mean, that was, that was something that, that came later that people actually started um, trying to, you know, categorize different manuscripts and different text types. Um, they were just basically looking at the manuscripts that they had, but most of the manuscripts they had were uh, a Byzantine text type. And so necessarily, the, uh, the Textus Receptus is basically a Byzantine text type. Um, now, as far as the name, uh, the name is Latin for received text. Um, and it just comes from a 1633 printing um, and they didn't immediately just start calling it the received text. Sometimes people will, will point to that and say, well, it's the received text. You know, that, that must have some weight. And it was just like, no, somebody in 1633 printed that in, in there. Uh, when, they, when they printed a Greek text, they said, oh, well, this is, this, is the, this is the text that we've received. This is the received text. Um, and in Latin, that's textus receptus. Um, but again, it was, they were just using the, the text that they had. They were, they were not deliberately choosing um, specifically um, Byzantine over Alexandrian, for example. Um, which actually, that gets us into uh, the next position, which is the ecclesiastical text position. Now, I haven't done extensive reading in this area. Um, I've encountered a little bit of the, the arguments. Uh, probably the, the most, the, like, kind of my first real introduction to it is there is a debate between uh, a written debate between James White and Doug Wilson, uh, where they go back and forth on this issue, and Doug Wilson being a proponent of the ecclesiastical text position. Um, and so I was going through that, and I pulled out a quote that I thought was kind of representative here. Um, Doug Wilson says, this was made a confessional issue at Westminster, where it was plainly asserted that the inspired scriptures were by God's singular care and providence kept pure in all ages and were therefore authentical. Which text family? Clearly the answer should be found in the one they were using. Now, 
that should probably have some weight. I mean, that's quoting Westminster Confession right there. Um, and, I mean, Doug Wilson is making the case that it's a confessional issue. If you hold the Westminster Confession, then you should be holding to the text family that was being used at the time that the Westminster Confession was written. Um, but, as I mentioned, they didn't have any concept of text families at this period of history. They were simply getting all of the manuscripts that they had access to and looking at them and trying to determine what do we think is the original reading. Um, and you say, well, but maybe it's just that God had preserved that particular text family so that that was the one that the church was using through the ages. Um, and so that's the one we should be using. And even if we have found other text types since then, and you know, even if they didn't have the ability to examine the different text types and make a choice between them, uh, but you know, it's just it's just that God has preserved that. Uh, I mean, I would say that that's part of the argument against it is, is like the, the the people, the Westminster divines, the reformers as a whole. They never had the opportunity to sit down and look at, okay, here's the Byzantine text type, here's the Alexandrian text type, here's the Western text type, um, yeah, and we've decided that clearly God has preserved the Byzantine text type and we're rejecting the other text types. They never had the opportunity to do that. Um, sometimes the ecclesiastical position is presented almost as if they did, as if they had weighed these options and, and had come down on the side of the Byzantine text type and said, hey, that's the right one. Um, and even then, I, I probably shouldn't even be referring to the Byzantine text type because when we talk about the Textus Receptus, although it is a Byzantine text, if you actually just are aiming to get at the Byzantine text, you're going to come up with something different than what the Textus Receptus is. The Textus Receptus um, was largely Byzantine, but it was using a smaller number of manuscripts that didn't give you all the information, and it had some mistakes. I mentioned, uh, uh, I don't remember if it was last week or the week before, but anyway, we talked about Erasmus um, and the fact that he, uh, at the end of the book of Revelation, that he didn't actually have a manuscript and he had to translate back from the Vulgate. And he wound up basically creating a Greek text that exists nowhere in the manuscript tradition. Uh, I mean, he got, he got it pretty close, but he still wound up a little bit different than any Greek manuscript that exists. Um, and so if you want to, and, and that was what was used uh, in the King James Version. Um, so if you want to go with just the Textus Receptus, then you're going you're gonna to be stuck with the things that Erasmus created uh, rather than something that the, uh, that the, uh, the Greek text actually supports. So... Um, but for me, like the biggest question here, what if um, what they were using in the 17th century was not identical to what Christians have been using in all ages as stated in the Confession? And I think you can make a case that what they were using in the 17th century was not identical to what Christians have been using in all ages. I mean, part of the reason is because some of what they were using in the 17th century was invented by Erasmus. I mean, not deliberately, but accidentally. Um, and we had First John 5-7 that we talked about uh, last week, I believe it was. Um, various 
little problems in the text receptus um, that are things that that we can't say that people have been using that in all ages. So it almost comes down to, well, we want to use the text that God had preserved for the 17th century, and never mind what Christians were using for all the centuries before that. Um, the, the reality is, is like the text that has been available to the church has varied over time. Um, if you look at the data, that's the conclusion you're going to come to. Um, there's, there's really no notion that God has had an identical text preserved for all Christians of all ages. So, I mean, I think when we look at what the Westminster Confession says, and I think it's correct, by, by God's singular care, I mean, God's is an anxious, but by his singular care and providence kept pure in all ages, um, the idea is that it's kept pure in, in the overall sense. Not that every last word is kept without any variation, uh, but that it's kept pure so that we have a consistent text all the way through history, and we do. Um, but if you want to, to bring that down to the word level and say every word has been kept unchanged throughout all history, then I, I just don't see how we could square that idea with the actual historical data. There's just the church has had to deal with variations in the text uh, throughout all of history. Does that all make sense? Yeah, the only distinction I would probably make is like we talk about plenary inspiration, mm -hmm. where every word is inspired mm -hmm. of God, but we always add that phrase in the original manuscripts, mm -hmm. and that that's a very important distinction when you're yes, talking about this kind of discussion. Yeah, very much so. Yes, um, when we're when we're talking about the inspiration of the text, obviously every single word written down by Paul, by Peter, by John, you know. All of the biblical authors, every single word is exactly as God intended. Um, and so when we're talking about the inspired text, that's what we're talking about. Uh, but the, the copying um, has introduced errors, and that's something that we just have to deal with. Ben? But with what you've already said, at the same time, we don't be afraid that those lost the word of God. We don't have absolutely inspired, every word is correct anymore, but as you were saying the true word of God has in the whole sense been preserved through all ages. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, and and this, I've got the, the slide at the end of our looking at these different positions here but, but realistically the theology that you get from any of these positions is the same. Um, even if you're King James only, you're still going to come up with the same theology as people that are using the, the critical text. Um, it's, it's uh, you know, God has preserved his word. So the variations we're talking about are not variations that are going to change what the Bible says. Um, and so God has kept his word pure. But um, the evidence indicates that he hasn't kept it pure at the level of we never have any question about any word in the Bible. Um, and uh, and the ecclesiastical text position tends to, to move towards that. It's probably not quite as severe as the King James Version, uh, the King James only uh, position, but it's still it's moving in that general direction. 
mean, at, the, at the very least, they're going to say that, like, if we look at our printed Textus Receptus, Greek texts, that's where we find the Word of God. And one thing that um, that really differentiates this from a, a Byzantine uh, position is when we look at texts like 1 John 5, 7 that we talked about. Um, when, we, when we talk about people that have the Byzantine priority majority text position, um, they are going to absolutely reject 1 John 5, 7 because it's not in the Byzantine text type. It's something that just appears basically at the very end um, possibly not even existing prior to Erasmus's uh, controversy when he left it out of his first printed Greek text. It's possible that every Greek manuscript that we have was, you know, came after that. I mean, like I said, there's one manuscript that could be dated before that, but it's not by much, and it's just one uh, manuscript. So um, if you're not wedded to the, the TR, if you're just saying, well, I think the Byzantine text type is the superior text type, you're still going to re reject 1 John 5, 7. Um, and so that's, again, like there's some there's some, some bleeding between these different positions, uh, but I think like really that is the dividing line between the ecclesiastical text position and the Byzantine priority position is like, what do you do with 1 John 5, 7? And the Byzantine priority position is going to say, or oh, no, 1 John 5, 7, that's not biblical. So, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, just go back and review, I think it was last week's. But I think all of you were here last week, so hopefully uh, hopefully you guys remember that text. So, so let's talk about uh, the Byzantine priority uh, majority text position. I'm very grateful to Pastor Rick who pointed me to some resources where my understanding of this position grew by leaps and bounds this week. So uh, you'll get a better presentation because of that. Um, so, um, one thing that is important to note is that the majority of our manuscripts are of the Byzantine text type. That's just most of them that we have, they are Byzantine text type. Now, unfortunately, uh, when they use the term majority text, it can sound like, and um, you even have people that are that have made this claim, uh, though I have found that it is not true, that basically what you do is you just count up the manuscripts. You look at a particular variant, you count up the manuscripts, and you say, okay, we have, you know, 3,000 manuscripts that read this way, and we have, you know, 2,000 manuscripts that read this other way. Well, we're going to take the one that has the, the, you know, the greatest number of manuscripts supporting it. Um, and that's not the way that it's actually... Um, that they actually approach it. Um, so it, it it does not simply count up the manuscripts for each variant. Um, but unfortunately, like some discussions of this say that that is what they do. So it can be misleading unless you like dig in and see what, um, what the actual proponents of this are saying. Um, and the way it approaches it is it analyzes variants within the Byzantine text type. Um, so they are taking priority for the Byzantine text type. They're saying, okay, let's look at the Byzantine text type, and we're going to look at the variants that exist in the Byzantine text type, uh, and then they're going to approach them very similar to what uh, an eclectical uh, approach would be, just in terms of like looking at it and saying, okay, what's likely to have 
you know, happened here, you know, where somebody just skipped something because of a similar ending or a spelling error or, you know, all sorts of things like that. They're going to be looking at it the, basically the same way. But they're going to be giving priority to the Byzantine text type. Um, and this position puts minimal weight on readings from other text types. So if you, you know, if you find readings that only exist um, in Alexandrian and Western manuscripts, for example, um, they're going to say, well, okay, that, that, we'll look at that. But if it's not in the Byzantine text type, then there's kind of a strike against it. Because uh, basically what it does is it argues that the Byzantine text type represents normal manuscript copying. Uh, basically the idea is, is that the Greek-speaking people, they're just copying the manuscript. Um, if anything starts to deviate too far from the tradition of copying, they're going to be looking at other manuscripts. They're going to, they're going to, you know, shore up those problems, and they're not going to continue making those same mistakes because they're going to be checking back with older copies. Um, and so you're going to have a very consistent textual tradition, um, and that's just, you know, we can look at that and say, okay, this is just the normal copying. That's what the Byzantine text type represents. It's just normal manuscript copying. Um, and it argues that other text types are basically their anomalies. That like for, for one reason or another, um, something happened to the text. Um, and maybe it was just this localized thing over here. Um, or, uh, you know, just various things. And they're going to say, okay, these are, these are the anomalies. These aren't the ones where we have this long tradition of Greek-speaking people copying the manuscript generation after generation. These are, these are just odd little things over here. We can look at them, they may have some weight, but they're really not gonna have as much weight as the, the normal manuscript copying tradition that we have with the Byzantine. Um, but it is important to note that the oldest extant manuscripts are from the fourth century. Um, and so the Byzantine can't get back as far in history um, as, uh, like, say, for example, the Alexandrian. The Alexandrian manuscripts are often cited as being some of our oldest manuscripts. Um, but, but again, they're they're going to say we can assume that the uh, Byzantine text type existed prior to the fourth century. We just don't have any manuscript evidence for that. But since we have this continuous line of uh, of manuscripts that are all of this text type, we can assume that it's like they had to come from somewhere. So there was these Byzantine manuscripts that existed before that, um, and it's, we just don't happen to have any that still exist. Um, now, one of the things that I noticed when I was uh, when I was reading through some of the argumentation um, is there's definitely a reaction to um, a position presented by Westcott and Ford. Um, and here's a, a quote from their introduction to the New Testament. Now, the Syrian, which is what they refer to as the Byzantine text, uh, must in fact be the result of a recension in the proper sense of the word, a work, at, uh, a work of attempted criticism performed deliberately by editors and not merely by scribes. And so Westcott and Hort presented this idea that basically the reason we don't have anything prior to the fourth century in the Byzantine text type is because the Byzantine text type was created in the fourth century. That the idea is that you had um, somebody in the fourth century that you know had some clout and lots of scribes behind them, um, basically looked at what manuscripts they had available, 
and attempted to come up with, and basically they tried to do textual criticism and come up with the best reading they could and establish this, this text type and that it, you know, it continued on from that period. Um, and so that's where the Byzantine uh, text type comes from. Now, this is, a, this is a, an idea of where the Byzantine um, text type came from. Um, some people hold to this position, some people don't, but it's, it's certainly a position that has been presented, um, and it's definitely something that the Byzantine priority people uh, definitely don't like and they, and they want to react against. Um, and so uh, just looking at what, um, at what uh, Maurice Robinson and William Pierpont, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, um, what they said here, uh, they, when, when they uh, described the different text types, this is the way they described the Alexandrian. They said the Alexandrian text type appears to originate in an early localized recension attempt to purge and purify, sorry, recensional attempt an early localized recensional attempt to purge and purify the alterations and accretions found among the Western manuscripts. And so they characterize the Alexandrian as being basically an edited text, that somebody said, okay, let's do some textual criticism here, and they came up with the Alexandrian text. So it's kind of just like, you know, throw the charge back the other way, as it were. Um, and then the way that they describe the Byzantine, they say the Byzantine text form uh, preserves with a general consistency the type of New Testament text that dominates, that dominated the Greek-speaking world. And so the Byzantine, that's, you know, obviously it's very much in favor of the Byzantine is the better text type. Uh, so we should follow the Byzantine text type and the Alexander text type, that's really suspect. Um, Whereas somebody like Westcott and Port, they would have been more the opposite way, where it's like, well, we're really suspicious of the Byzantine text type, and we think the Alexandrian text type more represents what the New Testament originally said. So kind of a, a back and forth there of, of kind of two um, extreme positions. Um, so I'm hoping that's like at least, I mean, you can for free go read uh, Maurice Robinson's discussion of Byzantine priority, and it's very insightful, uh, very helpful. Um, so, I, you know, I would definitely recommend if you're interested in that topic, you can go uh, read what he has to say. But to talk about eclecticism, um, this is the most common approach today. Um, if you pick up an ESV, uh, NASV, NIV, basically any of the major translations they're going to be translated from an eclectic text. Um, and basically the approach of eclecticism, it uses all manuscripts and chooses readings based on internal and external criteria. Um, and so the idea, at least from my perspective, is that you shouldn't just label a particular text type as bad um, and another text type as good, uh, but that you should just, I mean, you should take those things into consideration. Um, and in particular, it's really useful when you're looking at the text types to say, well, if we have agreement between multiple text types, then that really supports a reading, where if we have a reading that only exists in one text type, then that makes it less likely that it's the actual reading. You know, and if, if, if all the different text types just, you know, have their own version of you know, of a text, then you know, then you definitely have more of a problem. But if you have agreement, 
you know, like I mean, there's there's places where you can look at it. You can say, okay, the Byzantine and the Alexandrian read this way, and the Western read this other way. Oh, well, it's probably the the Byzantine and Alexandrian reading that's the correct one, just because you have different text types, but they agree in this area. So I think that's where it's really useful to use the different text types. Um, eclecticism rejects the King James onlyism and the ecclesiastical uh, text positions, uh, and basically it believes that the 16th and 17th centuries would too. Um, that if you if you would ask Erasmus or Beza or Stephanus or the King James only translators, um, you know, if they have all the information we have today, what position would they would take? I'd say, well, they would take the the uh, eclecticism position. Um, now we don't know if they actually would, but that's the the eclecticism position, that's the way they look at it, and like, yeah, they would agree with us. But they were constrained by limited access to manuscripts. If they had all the manuscripts, they would do exactly what we're doing. And it rejects the Byzantine priority, uh, putting great weight on the antiquity of non-Byzantine texts. And so just the fact that the non-Byzantine texts that we have, or at least some of them, um, are a lot older than the Byzantine texts that we have, like, okay, they have weight then just because they're older. Um, so not necessarily just because of their uh, of their text type. Uh, but it is true that this position has historically overemphasized the Alexandrian text type. Um, from my studies of things, Westcott and Fort were just very much, they were sold on the Alexandrian text type. And they're like, this is what we should follow. And the Byzantine is just not reliable. Uh, but if you look at the way that the eclecticism view of textual criticism has gone since Westcott and Hort, it's steadily moved more and more towards giving more credit to the Byzantine text type, but still giving a lot of weight to the Alexandrian text type. Um, so I hope that's clear that um, I, I think if we do eclecticism properly, we're not going to be just focused on, you know, the Byzantine, or, or just you know, just the Alexandrian text type, and rejecting the Byzantine text type. Um, and but if you are somebody who um, does agree with the position of the Byzantine text type, you're really not that far removed from doing more of a eclecticism uh, approach to it. I, I favor the eclecticism position, but I think that the Byzantine priority position definitely has a lot of merit. They have some good arguments that you should pay attention to. So, is that all, that all clear? I mean, I know that's just like really high level. Yeah. Well, I just say, bringing it down, down to where we live. So this impacts how we view the woman caught in adultery, that account, or the end of Mark, you know, things like that. It has some. It, it has it has some, some impact. Some yes. impact, you know. So it's not just academic, I guess, is all I'm saying. Right. Yeah. No. It's it's. Um, and actually, I mean, that's next thing, doctrinal consequences. Um, and it, it's it's going to have an impact on the way you look at particular texts, without question. Um, but the point I made earlier, um, the theology of the King James Version is Christianity. Theology of the Textus Receptus is Christianity. The theology of the Byzantine text is Christianity. Theology of the Alexandrian text is Christianity. Theology of the eclectic text is Christianity. So individual texts 
may be interpreted differently depending on which approach you take. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, you know, the woman caught in adultery is definitely one of them that, uh, that is going to come up in that debate. Um, but the doctrine of the Bible is the same uh, regardless of what text you're using. So, I mean, you can... I, I, I think that the, the first two of the positions we talked about, the King James only position and the TR only or ecclesiastical text position, I think they're a bit dangerous um, and they are based more on, on traditionalism than on actually looking at the data. But even taking those positions, you're still going to wind up with the same theology. I mean, the Westminster Assembly was using the King James Version of the Bible. And they came up with some pretty good theology using the King James Version of the Bible. Um, so this isn't something that's going to alter um, you know, what what we believe as Christians. Is that, I don't know if that fully addresses your point. Yeah, I mean, yeah, 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 touches that's on that's what you're saying. So. Yeah. Um, any other thoughts or questions about any of that? I know it's just like really like quick high-level overview of these positions and I, and I can certainly point you to all sorts of resources if you want to delve into them more. If you just want to discuss them with me, that's fine. But. So are there many people that would say that they're Alexandrian priority? Or would they label themselves as eclectic and you just have to read them to know like what's kind of Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't I mean, I don't think there's anybody living who, I mean, it's I mean, it's impossible. There's scholars that take every position under the sun. But as far as I know, uh, any living uh, scholars in the eclectic text approach are are not going to just prioritize the Alexandrian text. They're gonna they're gonna try to weigh things evenly. They may think they may give it more credit than the Byzantine just because of its antiquity, um, but. Um, but it's not it's not going to be just like where it's like, well, we're just gonna stick with the Alexandrian and yeah, we'll look at the Byzantine, but it's not really gonna impact they're gonna they're gonna take the Byzantine text seriously. Um, but yeah, Westcott and Port living in the eighteen hundreds, um, and shortly after the the discovery of these text types and uh, shortly after the discovery of some important Alexandrian manuscripts that were older than what anybody had, then they just kind of jumped on that and were just like, oh wow, yeah, this we have this older manuscript now. This is what we should follow. Um, but yeah, I, I think I think as a whole, every all all eclectical textual critics have moved away from just like really uh, a solid. We're going to take the Alexandrian because their only their only time they're prioritizing in the true eclectic approach would be Alexandrian that have antiquity. Mm-hmm. And then the Byzantine has just as much priority after the antiquities taken out. Mm-hmm. Basically, is, yeah. is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Because you know, I mean, there's different. There's di- like you said earlier. There's different factors mm-hmm. as we're looking at this. So antiquity is just one factor. You may have the number of manuscripts, or mm-hmm. you know, things like that. So there's all these factors that you're trying to sort of balance. Yeah. It's really tricky yeah. in some sense. Yeah. And and even antiquity itself is tricky because. The reality is we don't know on like if we have a ninth century manuscript, what did they copy that from? Did they copy that from a seventh century manuscript or did they copy that from a second century manuscript? I mean we don't know. So you could have a manuscript that's relatively late in terms of when it was actually copied, but it could be going from an exemplar that's very early, which would give its text 
much more antiquity. And so that's another one of those issues that people really have to struggle with as they're trying to figure these things out. Uh, that makes it where it's just not easy. So, um, but it's it's you know it's it's easier to say we know this this particular manuscript has a, a great deal of antiquity because it was copied a long time ago. Whereas you have later manuscripts that's like, well, they might they might have equal antiquity in reality, but we just we can't prove that. So it can definitely be a tricky issue. So. Any other thoughts or questions? All right, let's uh, let's close on prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just we thank you for preserving your word. We thank you uh, that just in all ages, um, and just with uh, all sorts of different approaches that people have taken to uh, the, the text of your word and trying to reconstruct the uh, the original, um, Lord, that in all of that, um, you have just clearly preserved um, a a doctrinal foundation for us that has remained uh, unchanged through the centuries for anyone who will take the time to just study your word and see what it says. Uh, that, that none of these none of these things that we're talking about is truly going to impact uh, what our theology is. Uh, but God, we, we value your word so highly that we we do desire to, to study and try our best to get uh, down to the very word, if possible, exactly what it is that you have said to us. Because we know that that is valuable, that is what will guide us. And so God, I just pray that you would just cause us to to be uh, very reasonable in these areas, that we would not be carried away either by traditionalism or just a embracing of modern secular uh, viewpoints. Uh, but God, just that we would have a, a commitment to your word, um, and God, that you would, by your word, guide us, sanctify us, and uh, just cause us to uh, be people who live lives worthy of the calling of which we are called. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.